Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. The scar had not pained Harry for 19 years. All was well. I'm Mrs. Granger. And I'm Mr. Granger. And we're never coming back from Australia, even though we got our memories back on Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Who wants a shrimp on the barbie? Oh, God. So, everybody, we just want to let you know that for Casper's very last episode, we are doing a live recording. The episode is going to air on April Fool's Day, even though it's not a joke. It really is Casper's last episode. (laughs) But we are recording it live in front of you all on March 25th. So go to NotSorryWorks.com and buy your ticket to send Casper off. Tickets are $15. And if you can't afford it, just email us. We would love to have you there. So Casper, overall impressions of book seven, you used to hate it. Do you still hate it? I used to really not love it because I just remembered it as this endless, cold, lonely search for Horcruxes that no one knows what they are or where they are. And this time around, my impression is that doesn't really last that long. Like there is a lot of other stuff happening in book seven, which is awesome. And so I'm now in that painful position where like every book that isn't book four is my second favorite book. (laughs) Book four, I think, has become my favorite book. So good. It's so good. Quadro Wizard Tournament. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, the four wizard tournament. Exactly. How about you? What impression were you left with this time? Well, it used to be my favorite book, and now it's a little bit less so. Why? I'm gonna talk about it more later when we talk about Harry's arc. 
But I think that reading it during COVID and at the end of the Trump administration and with J.K. Rowling revealing herself, it struck me as having not quite the right messages and not quite the messages that I wanted to have. Some of them are beautiful, right? Like love will protect us, I think is a really beautiful message. And so I don't want to throw out the book, but it's just it's no longer my favorite. It's no longer my favorite. My overall impression is that it is like the book of Ron Weasley's glow up. (gasps) Yeah, I'm like, that's it. You have grown and changed. You are a hunky hunk hunk. (laughs) Go get him, Hermione. (laughs) No wonder that's schmooching. Yeah. All right. Well, let's remind everyone what actually happens across the whole book. We are doing an epic 30 second recap. And Vanessa, I think. It's your turn to go first. Casper, I think that since you're about to leave us and no longer do 30-second recaps, you go first. Okay, okay, okay. I'll do it. Also, it's your turn. (laughs) Okay. 30 seconds on the clock. On your mark. Get set. Go. Okay, so we start with seven potters trying to escape because... um, um, the curse is going to lift. I mean, the protection is going to lift. And so on Harry's birthday, like they all have to zoom out. And then sadly, many people die. But there's this like wand connection with Voldemort that stays with us the whole time because Voldemort's hunt- hunting for the death stick and the elder wand. And um, Harry has to choose whether it's Hallows or Horcruxes. And in the end, he chooses Horcruxes and they go back to Godric's Hollow and Ron like abandons but returns. And um, each of the um, Hermione and Ron like kill a thing and then Harry rises from the dead. That was perfectly adequate. In five years, you have gotten like 2% better at this. (laughs) It's like even less appreciation than a savings account right now. (laughs) All the interest rates are so low right now. (laughs) All right, Vanessa, let's see what you got. 30 seconds on the clock. Give us a recap for book seven. Okay. Count me in. Three, two, one. So they go to the wedding of Fleur and Bill and it's really beautiful. And then like the war starts and Harry, Ron and Hermione go off on their own and they're hunting horcruxes and all sorts of things happen. They get Draco Malfoy is still a complete coward and eventually they end up at Hogwarts and there's a big battle. And then it turns out that Snape isn't as bad as we thought that he was. And it turns out that Neville is the hero and Ron is a hunk and Hermione kisses first, which is awesome. And then everything ends and Ginny and Harry end up together and all is well. Wow. I love the romance novel, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Yeah, I would love to read that. So, Casper, do you have any high-level thoughts that you want to share about book seven before we dive in more about Harry? Yeah, there's a couple of things that really stood out to me in this reading. I think one of them is the scale of death, just how many people die in this book. And, you know, earlier in the books, a single loss of life is so significant, just in terms of the the volume of pages that we spend with that person or, or the impact of their passing. And in this book, it is just one after the other, especially as we come towards the end. And I feel like overwhelmed by it. There isn't space to contend with it. Yeah. I remember at the beginning of COVID, at least for us in the US, Adam Schlesinger's death, who was the lead singer with Fountains of Wayne, band that I've enjoyed, just how huge that was. And like, I didn't even really know his name until he died. And now, of course, the numbers are so staggeringly high. And so just seeing a a mirror experience of that in the books really struck me this time. Part of me is like the deaths only really start in book four, but the deaths start in book one, chapter one, right? Like Mm -hmm. Lily and James have died. And so death carries this like pall over the whole 
books. Mm. But I absolutely think you're right. It's like this slow pace of death, almost, you know, reminiscent of deaths in peacetime, right? Where like Mm. horrible things happen, car accidents happen, cancer happens. But then these catastrophic events come into our lives, an evil wizard rises (laughs) and the death toll rises. Mm. Rarely does a chapter go by that there isn't at least the mention of a death. Mm. How about you? Was there anything that struck you this time around that you hadn't maybe noticed before or, or paid attention to in the same way? Yeah, just looking back, the most chilling part of the book to me is the Ministry of Magic and what we see going on there. Like Voldemort is like one bad dude. And like he has what's essentially just like a small band of followers, right? Like (laughs) it's definitely like under a hundred people. And if the ministry didn't back him up, if the ministry resisted him, none of this would have happened, Mm. right? And it's just like bureaucrats grabbing at these opportunities for power that really creates this reality that we end up living in for the rest of the books. And I understand that Voldemort infiltrates the ministry, but I really think that had there been more systematic points of resistance there, none of this would have happened. Right. That hearing chapter, especially thinking about all of the injustice that happens in courtrooms all over the world, that social movements matter, but like the laws really have to back them up. That's the thing that stuck with me at the end of the books. It's so striking to me, Vanessa, because you're you're absolutely right. To some extent, it's very hard to write a story about an institution or about a system, right? We're, We're always following the journey of individual characters. You know, what would the Ministry of Magic and the Deathly Hallows look like as a story? Because it's just such a stimulating question to try and shift our gaze just from individual successes and failures to where these systems take place. Yeah. I mean, as soon as there's a muggle-born registry... Yeah. Who was in the room when that registry got put on the books? Yeah. Everyone in that room who was against it should have like lit their hair on fire, been like, absolutely no. That's the thing that stays with me. Mm-hmm. What about Harry's arc? We often get lost in the weeds of the books and forget <laughs> about our darling Harry. So we like to take this moment to remember him. What are you thinking about him at the end of this book? One of the big things that really felt like it was woven throughout this book is his relationship with Dumbledore. This kind of swaying from a trust and an enduring faith in Dumbledore's guidance and and that everything will make sense and that he has to figure it out, but Dumbledore had a plan. And then this kind of absolute 180 where he's like abandoned, betrayed. He doesn't even trust who Dumbledore was right when he finds out more about Dumbledore's own story. And I I really love thinking about that because I think it is an important experience, at least one that I recognize, where when we have a hero or a mentor or someone who means the world to us and we come up really close and we see all the ugly, messy parts of their lives, sometimes intentional, right? Like sometimes we see their cruelty or their neglect. And sometimes we just see the complications of any life where there are compromises or letdowns and In some ways, I feel like it's kind of unresolved, even at the end. We see Harry realizing like, oh, he knew I was going to die all along, right? That moment where he puts the the snitch to his lips. And then that kind of strange, wonderful dream (laughs) something sequence 
in this mythical King's Cross where, as you had said, when we talked about that scene, he kind of returns to this old dynamic of like asking questions and just listening to whatever Dumbledore says. But that can't be the full picture. I mean, I would have loved in that epilogue to hear how he thinks about Dumbledore now, maybe with some time. Obviously, he's named one of his sons after him, so there's a lot of positivity. But does he forgive him completely? Are there still questions or, or sadness or hurt? Like, I'm curious how that would have continued if we'd been able to see more. I mean, it's interesting that Albus, the the child is named Albus Severus, because I think that any like real forgiveness that Harry is able to offer Dumbledore is given to him through Snape's memories, right? Mm. Harry finds out that even behind his back, Dumbledore was saying, like, I've come to love this child or it pains me. And so I think that it's a real gift that Snape gave him that he's able to have seen behind the curtain. And I love that he's not called Albus Percival Wilfred Bryan II, right? Like there is an honoring of Dumbledore, but it's not complete, right? It's it's mixing with this, you know, with the reality of what his choices meant for people like Snape. I hadn't thought about that. It's like an incomplete honoring. It's like, uh, yes, I love you and respect you. And I also want to acknowledge the, the mistakes you made or the shortcomings you had. How about you, Vanessa? Was there something in Harry's story that really struck you this time when, when we put it all together in a big picture? Yeah, I think the thing that I'm just struggling with in this book with with Draco and with Snape and but really with Harry is about the idea of a calling and when your time calls too much from you. Part of me thinks that there's a lovely arc here that Harry throughout this book realizes what his calling is and that it's to hunt Horcruxes and then it's to sacrifice his life the way that his mother did and that Mm. he's like genuinely called to that. But the other part of me is like, we should spend our lives exactly how we want to. And Harry doesn't want to do this and he just shouldn't have to, like he should not have to walk into the forest, right? Like he should have the option to walk away. And, you know, I, I feel like I, I'm, a person who's like constantly demanding courage of people. I think that when people aren't at least trying to be brave, it really infuriates me. Mm. And so I wonder why I'm so defensive of Harry. I'm like, no, you should not have to do this. Mm. And I think it's because he's not picking it. Mm. He's been groomed for it and Voldemort picked it for him. And then Dumbledore picked it for him. And, I agree with the conclusion that Harry comes to, but I don't like that he didn't have the choice. Mm. I always feel that tension about calling. How do you decipher what it is that you're called to? Do you have to answer when you feel like you're called? Like, what if Harry decided to, like, go be a hermit? Mm. He should have been able to make that choice. I'm just loving this image of you as the school counselor at Hogwarts with one of the greatest gifts that you've given me and so many others, which is you can quit. It's okay. Right. Like after he's finished like three or four Horcruxes, you're just like, Harry, you can let it go. Just pass on the information. You've done so much. Right. (laughs) Quit responsibly. Find someone else. Yeah. Neville's ready. Yeah. He's right there. Neville will call you if he needs you. But yeah, that is exactly my problem. You know, Vanessa, I was thinking about something else at the beginning of these books that feels really important to me, which is that although we've seen 
central figures in Harry's life die. Of course, his parents, Sirius, later Dumbledore, all of them in some way were caretakers of him. They're older than him. They have responsibilities for him. And then in this book, we see first Hedwig and then later Dobby die. And there's such a crucial moment when he's burying Dobby, right? When he's digging that grave with his own hands and sweat and tears. There's something that changes him. There's a resolve that strengthens in that moment. And it struck me that that is a pivotal moment because those are two loved ones for Harry that he was responsible for, or that Harry somehow had more power in those relationships, definitely with Hedwig. And and that seems different. I just hadn't made that connection before. And I'm wondering what you make of that. Can we see that with other characters? Is that something really specific to Harry when you're responsible for someone and they're killed? That, that, That is different. I mean, I obviously don't know insofar as like I've never lost anyone mm. that I'm responsible for, but it just breaks a person, right? Mm. It it changes them forever. Yeah, I guess I just hadn't really seen the centrality or the kind of the, the pivot that happens in that moment, especially with Dobby. That's the moment when he could have said, I'm out. This is too much. And yet Harry somehow manages to choose to go in even more deeply and and, and with this clarity and conviction. I mean, that is also something that I think we see when you lose someone who you're responsible for is like the desire to make meaning of it. Mm. I've talked a lot on the podcast about my friend who died when we were 15 and she got hit by a car and the person who was driving was elderly. And there is now a law in California about people over a certain age having to get more regular driving tests and reflex tests. And it turns out that this man, like his reflexes were totally shot. And her parents really advocated for that law, right? They were like, this cannot happen to anybody else. You know, we often see that, that there's a real desire to make some sort of meaning. Definitely. I mean, that's the reason my mom was a crossing guard when we were little. You know, her her brother died when... I think she was four or five. He was he was hit by a car and killed. And it's why my mother's always been involved in like cycling safety advocacy. And there's now, even though they're very, very thin, there are cycling lanes in the village that I grew up in. That has been so important for her. And it, it shapes the the people who survive that their lives in, in terms of what they see as necessary in the world. Absolutely. Yeah. It is time for our favorite section of every wrap-up episode, at least mine, because we get to go for the long view. The long (laughs) view. I don't even remember what the long view is anymore. I just like saying it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the long view is where we want to look at something specific and look at it over the course of the book. Yeah. So the first long view that I want to take (laughs) is of Ron and Hermione. Yes. So Ron is like obviously making a play for Hermione, like starting chapter one, right? Like Uh he is like, I have this book as to how to be nice to her. He's like complimenting her. He's holding her hand. And I just suddenly was curious as to why Hermione doesn't make her move sooner Hmm. Like Ron is clearly like, hi, I'm receptive. Hi, I'm receptive. (laughs) I think like Ron is making like very lovely, like not pushy moves. Yeah. It made me wonder. And I don't think there's an answer. Like, is it to not make Harry uncomfortable because they're about to go off the three of them? Is she still unsure of Ron? But like Ron is sure of her. I mean, who wouldn't be? (laughs) Yes. I mean, I am sure of her. (laughs) 
my theory is just that Hermione was like, we're about to be in a tent with Harry for God knows how long. Like, we can't be, like, making out in front of him. I really think, like, that's a calculation she's made. I mean, the interesting thing in their relationship, of course, is Ron's betrayal and return. And I wonder if something that holds Hermione back is actually that she's not sure that he's up to it. And that in some ways she feels like that's confirmed because she is mad when he leaves. I mean, absolutely beside herself uh, and of course has every reason to be and is the one who's much slower to forgive than Harry when he returns. And so it feels like in some ways that moment or that separation was necessary in order for her to embrace him physically and literally later in the book. I mean, like everything, I think it's probably both, right? It's like, this is, this would be really horrible for Harry if we were like snuggling in front of him. Yeah. He would feel like the third wheel in his own adventure. And like, I need you to prove yourself a little bit, right? Yeah. Like I've been in love with you since I was 12, but I don't know. We're not kids anymore. Either way, there's a generosity to it because I also think she might not want to, I say this with, with air quotes, she doesn't want to take Ron from Harry. I really love that you're pointing us to the fact that like they're about to go on this trip. If this was a normal school year, I think they'd be getting together. I, re I really yeah. do. But there's something about this mission that feels enormous. And the fact that, I don't know, Harry's had to leave Ginny behind. I think she would probably even think it's selfish, which makes me sad because it should never be selfish to be with person that we want to be with. I don't know. I can argue both sides of it. I think it's nice to be respectful of your friends, but also what if one of them died and they never got to like tell each other how they feel? Oh God. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Child sacrifice. Casper, <laughs> mm. what is something that you would like to take the long view of? The long view. Well, I want to talk about the Malfoys. Not just Draco, but, but really the whole family unit because I've always seen this moment when Narcissa says, yeah, he's dead. That betrayal of Voldemort as this sudden change, as this, this moment of everything changing. And actually, I'm starting to see a much longer, <laughs> much longer continuum in which they are being, for one reason or another, decentered from the inner circle, right? The Malfoys are out of trust. They're out of favor, and even when they were in favor, it felt like it was a choice of a sort of pragmatic choice. I, I don't want to sugarcoat the supremacy that's absolutely baked into the center of that family. But at the same time, they do kind of follow where the wind is blowing. And so when Voldemort is out of power, they're trying to be upstanding members, right, of, of the Wizarding Society, at least on the face of it, while doing other things underneath. And so I'm starting to see this moment of saving Harry as actually as, as a kind of logical result of what's been happening over the last couple of books, rather than an about face by Narcissa and maybe even the broader Malfoy family. Yeah, I mean, we see her betraying Voldemort in the beginning of book six, right? In the yes. Spinner's End chapter. So like, she's always been about Malfoy's first and foremost and Malfoy's first, Death Eater second. <laughs> Well, that is a depressing motto, but that is very true. <laughs> yeah, and I think that Draco, you know, I never really cared about Draco before. He, like, wasn't one of the characters that spoke <laughs> to me. And then reading in Community over these last few years, I've been like, oh, he's more of a central character than I gave him credit for. Mm. I sort of saw him as, like, a bully and you know, moved on. Yeah. But I'm more and more torn about him. You know, he 
he, hmm. I think more than Neville, is like the shadow Harry. He is also called to certain things of like being a Death Eater. Mm. And like that's so unfair that he's like called on to kill Dumbledore. And and yet I'm so disappointed in him, right? Like I I feel for him like no one should be asked to do these things, to yeah. have to be so brave. And yet he fails so spectacularly. Yeah. It's unfair the position he's been put in, and I don't think that necessarily I would do any better, certainly. And it's not good enough. It's just not good enough. It really isn't. And and the moment, honestly, I feel like I broke with Draco is in the room of requirement at the end of this book. Yep, exactly. I was just like, dude, I have given you chance after chance. We're already in Voldemort's world. Like, paddle up. You know, like, there's nothing for you to gain. I feel like I lost respect for him or even like some hope for him. I, I I was, yeah. Because like you can see that his own henchmen have turned on him and even then he won't stand up against them. It's sad. It is sad. And again, like I want to give him all the like grace in the world. Mm-hmm. And he's been given these outs, right? Like Dumbledore offered him an out. Harry offers him an out in the room of requirement. Like he's just been offered these opportunities that he yeah. just hasn't taken. Yeah. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place. So you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Vanessa, let's talk about one of the kind of outstanding questions that has dogged or perhaps intrigued us throughout the series, and especially this book, which is the role of Slytherin and what should become of it, especially that, I think. You know, we we see this little glimpse of the future in the epilogue and Slytherin still exists. We talked a a little bit about that last time. If you were the Minister of Magic, if you were the, you know, the head of Hogwarts, how would you handle this existence of Slytherin House? What would you do? 
shut it down and put up a plaque. <gasps> really? Yeah. It's the Confederate flag, Confederate army. Wow. And like the South, like I understand that a lot of people have very strong emotional attachments to it and that not everybody was complicit in the horrible things that have happened in its name. And like Dennis Creevy is going to come to school next year and he should not have to sit next to a Slytherin who Mm. is representative of something like so horrible in his life. I just I think that priority should be oriented around the vulnerable. It's like time to hang up its boots and we can make meaning of the history of it. And some of its ethos of ambition and cunning should be absorbed into the other houses. And well, the house system should be dismantled and all the houses should have to do with everything. But like, I guess I'm just like feeling for our listeners who are like, and even you, right, who self-identify as a Slytherin. But I would like to think that you all self-identify with like being cunning and ambitious and not with the thing that killed Dennis Creevy's brother or Ginny Weasley's brother. And so a lot of bad things were done in this name and we have to throw out a little bit of the good with the bad. But like, yeah, Slytherin gone, tear down the statue, put up a plaque. The statue used to be here. Done. What do you think? That is so interesting. Ooh, and just to complete the story, are there then just three houses or is there a new fourth house that's like named after Dumbledore or someone? I mean, do I I have all the power to decide? Yes. Okay, so there are three houses, but you are randomly assigned to them. Ooh. It's just like a dorm where you live and you like your Quidditch teams play against each other and there's no sorting hat. The Mm -hmm. sorting hat gets put in a case in front of Slytherin house and it gets like kissed and like that's it it becomes like a little museum it just it just sings the macarena every day you know just to annoy people i'm so fascinated by our two different directions here because i think they illustrate two very legitimate strategies like i i first of all just want to say i totally see the value of what you're offering and i think it's the right thing to do i mean just to use the confederacy example that was an insurgent breakaway state that was defeated so like The end, right? Done. Gone is that flag, except in a museum. The example that I went to was not an abolishment of the house, but a process of truth and reconciliation and reparations. I kind of went down the Germany post-World War II route Mm -hmm. because the state of Germany still exists, right? It's, of course, got a different structure of leadership and government, but as a nation, it still exists as a language, as a culture, right? All of those things are still very real. And so it wasn't a question of like making it go away. We've had a process of truth telling through the education system, through national memorials, literally physical places in just about every German town. We've had a process of reconciliation to some extent and a very intensive process of reparations. You know, something I don't think we talk about enough, certainly not in the United States, is that since 1952, Germany's paid more than $70 billion in reparations, as they should have, through various programs, primarily to the Jewish victims of of the Nazi regime. And money is still dispersed through pensions and and various other channels. And so I'm thinking about what does it look like for Slytherin to be really upfront about the story, not just of Voldemort, but of Salazar Slytherin, of the very founding of this house on a story of supremacy, of an insistence on pure-bloodedness, right? Like all of this stuff that is hella problematic. And I'm actually, now that I'm saying all of this out loud, I'm like, Vanessa's right. There is no reason... (laughs) 
for that house to stay. So like I also want to laud the country of Germany for the way that it has handled the Holocaust. My my grandpa was taken care of at the end of his life entirely by German reparations. Now, mind you. He would have been able to take care of himself financially if the early investments Amen. that he made in his life hadn't been stolen from him. So it's not this like act of charity that Germany did. Absolutely. But it's a school. It's not a nation state. Yeah. The reason I think I'm also saying plaques is because we see this in literal schools, right? Harvard has a history of having a lot of former slaveholders being early investors. And there's an active attempt to have like those portraits brought down Mm. and plaques going up instead saying this person's portrait used to be up here, but we no longer want to celebrate him Mm. for merely donating money to Harvard. He earned his money by owning people. I think that there are times and places for reparations. And I definitely think like there should be a course, you know, and maybe Hermione Granger comes in and lectures on the history of Hogwarts a couple times a year. (laughs) And like, I don't think Slytherin should be forgotten. And I love that you're pointing us to that. Mm. Like, I think there needs to be real education about it and that it wasn't all bad and that it was complicated. And but at the end of the day, like just certain things are cancers and you sometimes have to cut out a little bit of an organ to get rid of the cancer and that sucks and it's terrible, but bye. Do you know what? I want a fourth house and I want it to be the house of black, not the house of black that we know, but the house of Regulus and of Sirius because they come out of that Slytherin story and they chose something different. There has to be somewhere where the story can go. Do you know what I mean? Yes. I'm open to that. And I would like it to be called the Casper house and <laughs> and there's chocolate for everyone. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's also like don't not use space and, you know, their beds. Put in a pool table and that'll figure most of the things out. Oh my god, there should be a guidance counselor's office in that room. <laughs> Maybe massage therapy. There's a lot that we could add here. I was serious about the guidance counselor. <laughs> this school needs a social worker of some kind. <laughs> I think we fix that. I, you know, Hogwarts, give us a call. We're, we're here to help. Oh, my God. We should start an edu- a magical education consulting firm. All right, Vanessa, let's look at two specific pieces of text that we both found sparkling for us. We're going to do a Florilegia, and both of us have chosen a line that we think kind of represents the whole of the book or or, or gives us a new insight into the whole of the book. And I want you to share what that sentence or that snippet of text was for you. For me, it was, the sea was rushing against rock somewhere nearby. That just gave me tingles. Why Mm. Why did you choose that? It is from the moment after Dobby has died and Harry is holding Dobby and, you know, we're by Shell Cottage. I I picked it because I think that there are these moments where Harry realizes that, like, the world is still happening. Mm. I think I want to remember that, especially in moments where I'm scared, right? Like, birds are still flying. Like, the sea is still going. Like, tides still exist. And I think that the reason in part that Harry makes this super important decision to bury Dobby the way that he does and to go after Horcruxes is because he's in this beautiful place. Mm. I think Virginia Woolf would have picked this quote also. (laughs) Another reason, right? Something about the waves reminding us that the earth is just moving. What about you? 
I picked You Have Used Me, which is Snape to Dumbledore. We're, we're seeing it in this flashback where he's basically putting together that Harry was always meant to die um, in, in Dumbledore's imagination and that he thought he was keeping Harry safe, but that was that was not really the whole story. And I picked it because... I mean, little story here. I went to a friend's outdoor birthday party recently and there was a, a bonfire. And one of our mutual friends asked this kind of question. You know how you do at a party where you're like, oh, I'm just going to start a good conversation. And she asked, do you think if you had lived the same life as someone else and you know, you'd know you had all of their experiences, you would make the same choices that they do in their life? And without thinking about it, without hesitating, I said, yes. And I, I realized, and other people really had very different views, right? That there was something essential about who they were that would be different if they were in that person's experience, et cetera. And I think the reason why I was so quick to say yes to that question was because we've been reading these books in the way that we have for so long. Because Were you like, I actually have evidence. <laughs> Severus Snape. Honestly, I feel, I was like, I was like, oh, this is why I'm so confident about that. Is like, we keep putting ourselves in these characters to try and understand how they're making sense of their life and choosing the things that they do. I feel so much sadness for Snape. I felt his despair. I felt his sense of futility, the, the betrayal he probably felt to Lily that he'd agreed to this whole scheme. I don't know, there, there was something heartbreaking in that moment. And it and I chose it also in part because, of course, Snape has this 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 change in our in our understanding at the end of this book that that feels complete as we come to the end of book seven. Maybe these books have used me <laughs> in the sense that I've become, I don't know, I think I've become just much more forgiving or at least understanding of yeah. how people act the way they do. I mean, how I act the way I do. Right. Reading something closely teaches you empathy, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's just a heartbreaking line you have yeah. used me, right? Yeah. Well, let's let's put them together and see if we find something new. So I'm going to read yours and then mine. The sea was rushing against rock somewhere nearby. You have used me. What does that bring up for you? So I'm just imagining this conversation between Snape and Dumbledore happening at the sea and the opportunity to stare out at the sea rather than look at each other. I think that that's part of what's so beautiful about nature is you mm. sit next to each other and look at it um, rather than looking at each other. It's almost like treating a text as sacred in that way, mm. right? You're looking at something else. And I don't know. And therefore, I read it as like less accusatory, less like you have used me mm. and more like peaceful and understanding of like, oh, like you've used me. Mm. So, yeah, that that's what it brings up for me. What about you? Well, I was reading it in a Casper way. So, of course, I was like <laughs> thinking that the sea has used the rocks. <laughs> oh, <laughs> In, in I the, love that. <laughs> in, and I'm, I guess I'm thinking back to the conversation we had before about like this, this human niche that I was describing, right? This interaction between place, environment and, and the people in it. And that one doesn't evolve and like impact the other alone, right? They're constantly these feedback loops where one is shaping the other and that it's not a bad thing to be used in that way, right? Like sea and shore, rock and water are always shaping one another. And that's how we end up sometimes with beautiful places, like caves with, you know, inferi. Uh <laughs> I love that you're pointing us to that because where rock meets water is my favorite place. Ooh. There's just something so beautiful about mm. the erosion of it, right? That rock 
prevents the water, but the water is eroding the rock. There's just something really incredible about it. Now I want to rename all four houses, like air, water, earth, and fire. <laughs> yeah, And like, let's go pagan. I'm into it. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> all right. Let's see what happens if we read it the other way around. So now we have as our text, you have used me. The sea was rushing against rock somewhere nearby. So I think because of the fact that the setting in my head is Shell Cottage, mm. I can imagine like this being a feeling between Dobby and Harry, mm. but like not as an accusation as like, a, like you've used me and that, that feels good. Like Dobby mm. feels some peace in his dying that he sacrificed for Harry and, and Harry feels like he has to give something back by burying Dobby. There's just this different tone to mm. it of like, I'm glad you used me. Like, thank you for calling me. Mm. This is so the wrong image to point to, but <laughs> for 10 years, we've been rusting, needing so much more than dusting. <laughs> you know, from Beauty and the Beast, where all, all, all of these tea sets and, you know, household items have been waiting to be used again, right, since their glory days. And, and I want to be really careful about how I say this because it, it can become very essentializing very quickly. But there can be a real satisfaction that we find when we're able to give our gifts and, and excel at it. Oh, absolutely. Right? And I, I think that's what you're pointing to with Dobby is like he was able to use his, his magic, which no one, at least we don't really understand, and able to save, you know, Harry, whom he adores. Of course, as soon as we have something positive, my mind goes to the opposite. And so the scene, that place of rock and water meeting for me is, is the cave, right? Where young Tom Riddle abuses mm. these other children. And so I'm, I'm thinking about what these probably now, you know, grown up children, if they're still living, would say to Tom Riddle, to Voldemort, you know, they were his first victims in a way. And that they said too, like you used me, that really haunting echo of these unnamed children who who were a sign of, of what was to come. Yeah, I mean, like, right, it's the human in nature, right? It's all the gifts mm, of being human mm. and all of the downsides of being human and of the beauties of nature and all of the deterioration of it. Vanessa, I'm so glad we get to continue our reading of the names of people who have been loved by members of our community and who've passed because of COVID. This week, we honor... Joan Lennox, who was 83, a grandma and intrepid world traveler. Steve Shulman, who was 67, a family patriarch and community leader. Greg Green, who was 85, a priest and an honorary grandfather. Benito Gomez in his 60s, who was a father of two and a wild soul. Tony Yardley, who was 68, a guitar teacher, a mentor, and friend. Karen Hodgman, who was 75 and a beloved community contributor. May their memory be a blessing. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. 
And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the borough. Download the Redfin app to get started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Vanessa, it's time for us to bless a character. And we're coming really to the end of our ability to do this together. So I'm wondering who you want to bless as we look back across the Deathly Hallows. I want to bless Lily because mm. I the thing I was so struck with this time, and this is just because I'm like not a great reader. So the first time I didn't catch on, the first three times I didn't catch on, that Harry, by sacrificing himself, saves all of Hogwarts, mm. right? That like Lily taught him that. And I just love the lesson and the idea that by loving others, you can teach them that they are worthy of love and how to love. And so I want to bless Lily for, not for dying for her love, but just for loving so Mm. much that it's taught Harry how to love that much. That makes me think of Lily as like a saint. Yeah, I think she should be. The way in which saints do something extraordinary that then inspire other people to do great things. I hadn't, hadn't seen her in that way. That's beautiful. What about you? Who would you like to bless? I was thinking about the absolutely vital and sudden turnaround in the Battle of Hogwarts, right? All seems lost. And then suddenly these kind of backup forces arrive, right? The friends and family of students of Hogwarts. Crucially, the centaurs come come out of the forest. I I don't want to overly praise people who are late to the battle, hashtag America and World War One, But... <laughs> yeah, and World War II. But, but I did want to lift up Bane, the centaur, you know, who has been for reasons that we don't know, so critical of of the wizards and witching world. And just this super intense distancing over and over and over again, honestly willing to sacrifice many, many lives. And yet something changes for him because, you know, he's in that that crowd of centaurs coming out of the forest, stepping into the fray. And I I have to believe that there's something in his relationship with Hagrid, something in that moment of seeing 
the apparently dead Harry being carried out that moves him. And I I guess I want to bless him for that response or what I'm reading as a response. And that even when we feel like maybe we weren't part of the first racial justice protest in our cities, maybe we didn't get involved in unionizing in our workplace when it started, but it isn't too late to still make a difference. And I think Mm. we see Bain making a difference in this book in a way that I hope means that there's still time for all of us to to make good good choices. I love that. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook and find listeners who are discussing this episode in the Facebook Common Room. Please join one of our local groups and join the community of people supporting us on Patreon. We so, so appreciate each and every one of you. You can always leave us a review on iTunes, send us a voicemail, and check out our new podcast, The Real Question. The second episode was just released, and I think you'll enjoy it because I'm talking about whether I should learn how to drive, which I don't know how to do. Next week, we'll be doing a whole series wrap-up episode, looking back through books one to seven. I'm already pumped. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. We're edited this week by Juliana Bradley. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we're distributed by Acast. Thanks to Molly Baxter, Julie Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Megan Kelly, Stephanie Purcell, and everyone who sent in the names of their loved ones. We'll be with you next week. I find myself wanting to be, you know, the character in Mean Girls who shows up and is just like, I want us all to be friends. You don't even go to this school. (laughs) Slytherin House doesn't exist anymore. Yeah.